The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with the people who matter in the worlds of business, finance, and economics. I'm Pete Sweeney, Asia Economics Editor at Reuters Breaking Views. I am here in Hong Kong, chatting virtually with Benjamin Fanger, founder of Shorevest Partners. As a China journalist, I've regularly kept in touch with Ben over the years because he's been engaged in what I consider one of the hairiest trades in the world, that is specifically buying and selling Chinese distressed debt. He's been in business since 2004, making him one of the industry's pioneers here, and he's managed about $1.8 billion worth of troubled loans in special situations. Ben, welcome to The Exchange. Thanks, Pete. Happy to be here. Well, look, uh, we had some scheduling issues with this call, but it actually ended up working out quite well because we've just had a really interesting news development, namely that Beijing, the central bank, has allowed the first bank bankruptcy in nearly two decades in the form of Baoshan Bank, which is going to be allowed to go under after being put under government management. This was kind of an interesting case. You know, the good assets have been hived off, but there have been some haircuts distributed to investors. Uh, it seems most got around 10%. Some took 30%, according to rumors. I'm just curious what your read is. What signal is Beijing trying to send here regarding its approach to this infamous pile of of non-performing loans? Yeah, I think I would say that Beijing is sending a twofold signal. So on the one hand, by taking over the management and sort of stepping in and making sure that it wasn't sort of catastrophe that caused some sort of systemic risk. I mean, e- even a 10% haircut, that's just not that much, right? So for them to step in and say, look, we're going to where a wind down has to occur, we're going to manage it to make sure that there is not systemic risk coming out of this. So one side of what's being communicated is we're not going to have a Lehman moment here in China. And I think also, you know, there are larger banks that have probably had similar issues behind the scenes. And so making an example, so to speak, of a smaller bank or using it to make a point, I think is you know a very understandable thing to do. The other side of what they're doing is saying there's not this sort of what has historically been referred to as a sovereign put or guarantee on everything, right? So just investing in something that you think the government is going to care about keeping alive doesn't mean that you're not going to come away with some sort of loss. And they really have to send that message so that the market works and so that capital flows have some reason to them. Uh, And I think that's also the reason that they have allowed other kinds of defaults. And this is all in line with what Beijing told me when I was having lunch with one of the directors of the CBRC in January 2015. And I was asking him, what are you going to do about the fact that there's this wave of non-performing loans coming? Are you going to just kind of step in and let have the government bail everybody out and nobody takes any losses? Uh, or let the banks extend and pretend everything. And he said, we're not going to do either of those things. We want the market to be the primary sort of solution to this. Um, allocation of credit and capital needs to be market driven. And so the other side of what Beijing is doing here is is letting things occur that will cause the market to price risk. Investors to take certain amounts of losses, even if they want to avoid systemic risk. Uh, The other thing thing they want to avoid is uh, social unrest. That's the primary thing the government always wants to avoid. And for that reason, aside from a bank closure 
you know, potentially causing some sort of systemic bank industry risk. <clears throat> it also has the potential to cause social unrest when depositors are worried about whether they're going to get their cash out. And so for the government to step in and say, you know, we'll make sure that that if there is a wind down, that it happens in an orderly fashion uh, and that uh, depositors aren't the ones taking a 10 or 30 percent haircut or whatever the haircut may be. That, that's, I think, si- sending a signal to the lawbishing, the common people in China to, to let them know there's no need to worry. So if I can chase that, Ben, central bank regulators have hinted that they were going to allow a bank bankruptcy for a couple of years now. And one of the reasons they felt free to make that threat, I think, is that they put in place this deposit insurance program where I think up to 500,000 renminbi of savings are protected. But in this case, that wasn't actually invoked. I don't think they actually turned to the deposit insurance program. And at the same time, not only did bail out the depositors, they also bailed out their investments in wealth management programs, which has been this other area of systemic financial risk. Um, how do you rate the government's response on, on that front? Um, I think it's it's quite predictable. So the government put in place the deposit insurance program probably as one approach to getting the law by seeing, you know, comfortable that they're not going to need that a run on the bank would be pointless. But if the government has the wherewithal and they do to just make everybody whole or cause some other government owned entity to make everybody whole, then they'll do that. So I don't think relying on the deposit insurance program was necessary. What they're trying to achieve is communicating to the retail investors, the depositors, that you're going to be fine. And at the end of the day, as the government is deciding whose hand to slap, it's not going to be the people that bought the wealth management products. It's going to be the people that distributed the wealth management products. And we've seen that time and time again over the last four or five years where the shadow banking system has largely been reined in by the government. You've seen, you know, sort of increased regulation on the offering of uh, shady wealth management products, a kind of ever shrinking number of participants in that space as Beijing tries to make sure that things that are being offered are not going to put retail investors at undue risk. And so when there is a problem, I think it doesn't matter what deposit insurance is in place. It doesn't matter whether it's a wealth management product or savings, I think for the most part, the government is going to lean toward finding a way to make retail investors whole. While undue risk has been taken or shady sort of financial activities have happened, it's going to be the financial institutions and their management that's going to have their hands slapped. Well, I mean, so there's also the business of distressed debt that you're in. There are these giant asset management companies that the so-called bad banks that Beijing put in place. They've been around for a while. They were supposed to swallow a bunch of bad debts from earlier financial crisis, and then they got reactivated, I think, in 1997 or something, um, and then they got reactivated in 2008. But, I mean, they've basically been in, in business this entire time. You know, some of them are listed. Where do they stand at this point in time in their ability to do more absorption of duff loans created by banks like Baoshang and the assumption that Baoshang is, is not a loan? So Beijing has done a couple things to make sure that there's enough there in terms of bad bank capacity or involvement or focus on the NPL problem to be able to help dissolve or digest the NPLs that are in the commercial banks. So among the things that Beijing has done, number one, for the four national AMCs, two of which are public now, Xindan, Huarong, 
they implemented a policy a few years ago that was in Chinese called which means to return to your primary business. And so why would there need to be a directive from Beijing that told the four national AMCs to return to their primary business of just working on NPLs? The reason is that post-2008, when there weren't very many, I mean, that you, with the credit boom post-2008, you saw an extension of all of the loans that would have otherwise gone into default. So there were no new NPLs really, I mean, very little in the way of NPLs. But that's a way for Beijing to kind of create more channels through which commercial banks can get rid of their NPLs. And then earlier this year, we saw a, a really interesting new development as well, where in the trade deal between the U.S. and China, there was this kind of little clause in there that probably nobody expected, which was that Beijing said, we're going to allow U.S. financial firms to have an AMC license in China or set up an AMC in China, which I think was Beijing kind of throwing another thing on the table in the negotiation, like, hey, look, we're going to also let you do this. Not that the U.S. government really wanted that necessarily, but it was just kind of a gimme. And then <laughs> and then you had uh, and I think there was even some news that was in the, you know, in the U.S. press about how, wait a minute, what we got was the ability to buy garbage loans from China. This is, this is silly. But I, I think and then beyond that, in a couple months after that, it, it just kind of got opened up to any foreign financial institution. But nobody's set up one, partly because it's very difficult to travel to China right now, but also just because there are requirements around kind of how much registered capital and so forth. But long story short, all of these things show that the government is really trying to create additional channels. First of all, cause the big four AMCs to go back to their main business and then also create additional channels. And they're really encouraging people like us to try to help with this problem, even if it means, you know, we buy some loans at one, two cents on the dollar. You know, most are more like 20 to 30 cents on the dollar. There are a lot of NPLs out there that are arguably worth well north of 50 cents on the dollar just because they're so heavily collateralized. But this time around, unlike last time, the banks are really taking losses and prices are sort of set to a level that you can make a, a reasonable return on most NPL portfolios if you know what you're doing. But yeah, the AMC developments have been all in the direction of Beijing trying to create more ways for these things to flow in the market. Well, you've talked about if you know what you're doing, and I know there's some challenges to operations in this market. You know, if I was if I was considering uh, going into the distressed debt business in China, um, what warnings would you give me about the standing challenges in the market that haven't been cleared away? Well, like the good news I'd give you is that it sounds a lot scarier than it is. I mean, you started this conversation by saying, you know, I'm one of the pioneers in a, in a space that you consider to be you know, one of the hairy trade. Yeah, yeah, hairy trade. Actually, I think what we do is is especially if you look at what's happening in the world right now, like what we do is a very safe trade. So why would I say something like that? So we're buying corporate non-performing loans at somewhere between one and 30 cents on the dollar. And most of them, at least those that we price between 10 and 40 cents on the dollar, they're a senior secured loan backed by real estate. So in the entire history of my investing in this space, so it's been a decade and a half now, we've never lost money on an NPL portfolio. And the reason for that is if you put it in loan to value terms, we're buying it at a third of the underlying collateral value. Now look at direct lending in the United States, where if you're a direct lending fund in the United States, you're probably 
if you're trying to make a even a low teens return, you have to be really junior. So you're mezzanine, if that, maybe unsecured. So in an environment where you have asset prices fall 10, 15, 20%, nightmare scenario, 30% or more, or you have a situation where you have kind of office buildings in San Francisco or whatever, pick a city, that you have no idea when people are going to come back to work and when you're going to be able to liquidate those. But it's so heavily levered, you're in a very, very hairy spot. So I actually think this isn't the question you asked. I actually think we're one of the safest bets to make in the world right now, only because of that level of collateral coverage. That being said, if you want to go to China and start playing in a space where you get in lawsuits on a daily basis. Just yesterday, I probably signed 200 legal filings for lawsuits we're filing in, in various Chinese courts. You know, Sorry, that I mean, was 200. Yeah. I mean, Is that yes, your I, daily I, lawsuit flow? No, no. <laughs> that, but that's, that's, these, are, these are the signature pages for, we, we're in probably, <laughs> you know, four or 500 lawsuits in China right now. So, you know, and that's a like of, a, that's like a standard, <laughs> that's like your average. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, okay, that still know. sounds hairy to me, but I take your point. Um, I yeah, mean, yeah. It's, I just, I mean, it's pointed out that other people have gotten it very wrong, right? Like there's other yeah, people in this market who've gone in and like bought like a factory that they're going to turn around and yeah, just going to let you do. Not, right. Yeah, sorry there, but to really more directly answer your question, I think two, the cautionary points I'd make. So one you don't go into something thinking you're going to turn around a factory. Two, you don't go into something thinking you're, you're going to liquidate the fact, even if you're the senior loan on a, on a factory or whatever asset that if you're going to have to fire hundreds of people or you're going to have to kick people out of their homes, you're not a senior secured loan. So it's really distinguishing between those situations that look on their face like it's a senior loan and it's not. And those that actually are, and you can actually auction the building in a court. So once, you know, and it, so I don't want to make it sound easier than it is. It's hard work and yeah, because I might actually do it now that you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> quit my day job. Well, there, the, the state <laughs> is littered with groups that have tried to do it from afar, like without. Oh, yeah. That's another thing. You really need a robust team. I, I'm fluent in Chinese and have been for more than half my life, and the team is all Chinese. So we're not trying to make decisions from LA or New York or something like that. Right. Well, let me ask you, I mean, like in the current macroeconomic moment, you know, we have the surge of credit coming out of China over the pandemic, you know, and the government is guiding banks to lend more, um, hopefully lending more to small businesses that are struggling. You know, we can see like the restaurant hospitality sectors have gotten absolutely hammered. Obviously, with the trade war, the export sector is seeing better days in some ways, although they seem okay. But I mean, I guess my question is, like, if the government is telling the banks to roll everything over and not put everything into distress, is this a bad time for your business or a good time? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, so you could think of the pandemic as causing the third wave of NPL, so which is yet to come. And this question is more directly related to that in the sense that Beijing has told the banks in recent months, look, if a little company is going to become a non-performing loan because of the pandemic, let's give some forbearance. So specifically with respect to things that are becoming non-performing loans because of the pandemic, that I do expect Beijing to kind of continue to offer some forbearance probably into next year, rather than sort of having restaurants and hotels shut down en masse. That's a good thing. 
I mean, it's if I was looking to that as our sole source of deal flow, then yeah, it would be a bad thing for our business from a capital deployment perspective. But we don't want China to be doing terribly. That we don't need China to do terribly to have opportunity. But kind of bigger picture, the second wave of NPLs, which pre-existed the pandemic, was to the tune of trillions of dollars of NPLs. So the, and that came from the corporate credit boom that happened after the global crisis. So China basically told the banks, open the floodgates. And so you had just this massive amount of lending, which was really what began, they began cleaning up in 2015 when I was in Beijing having that lunch with the CBRC. And since then, we've, you know, maybe we're like halfway through cleaning that up. So that pre-pandemic existing amount of NPLs is plenty for us to do. What we're seeing right now that's interesting is more on the special situation side of our business, where there are a lot of companies that even though the government speaks to the, I mean, forbearance is one thing, but then there's providing credit to SMEs is another thing or private enterprises in general. And if you're a bank right now, I mean, you're much more likely to lend to an SOE. And so even if Beijing kind of is encouraging banks to lend to the private companies, it's tough. Like they don't want to lose their jobs. They want to kind of go to what's safest right now. And that means that privately owned companies, uh, SMEs, they are still without it much needed credit. And so in the last four or five months, I mean, I just looked at the total volume of special situations deals that we looked at, and it's four times what we looked at all of 2019 in just four or five months. So, and when I say special situations, it's it's kind of direct lending, private credit, bridge lending opportunities, apart from the NPL. So uh, we got plenty to do. Well, just one final question. I mean, so you, you've mentioned a couple of things about your business model. One is that you, you like assets backed by real estate, mm-hmm. real estate collateral, and you also do a lot of business in Chinese courts. Those two things terrify a lot of foreigners. The Chinese real estate sector has been described as this kind of endless bubble that is going to eventually blow up. And then, uh, although not everybody agrees with that. And then and then a lot of people, like are under the impression at least, that going into a Chinese court you know, is, is incredibly difficult and risky and politicized. But you seem fairly, your model seems to be fairly bullish on both. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the kind of person who paints myself as smart enough to even be like bullish or bearish on anything. I just know from experience, like in this specific thing, what do outcomes look like and over a long period of time? And if you price at a level where you're a third of the underlying building's value and you know through experience and you've done all the due diligence on the legal documents and so forth, but you know through experience you can actually auction that thing in a court then I don't need to be bullish or bearish on Chinese real estate because even if it drops 20% in value, it's going to make it a bit slower to liquidate that building, but it's not going to mean that we have capital loss risk. But that being said, I think the argument that there is a bubble in Chinese real estate is something that, you know, just heard time and time again for like over a decade now. And I do think there are definitely bubbles in some places, but real estate in China. So what are we talking? What real estate are we talking about? Because are we talking about the mini Paris that was built like three hours outside of any major city because some guy who had access to billions and billions of RMB likes Paris and wanted to build a mini Paris? Or are we talking about an office building in the middle of Shanghai or, or even better yet would be like a second tier city that 
has uh, a lot of need for a particular kind of product. So this sort of blanket wholesale headline that you see that China real estate is a bubble is just kind of laughably naive. And also like debt levels on this, it's it's nothing like debt levels that you see on real estate in California. So, you know, you have... You <laughs> Maybe have we should not use California as our bar. <laughs> I, <laughs> but, yeah. I say recollect some problems with the state of California and debt in the past. But let, let me ask you one other thing, which I think is interesting. I mean, a lot of the complaints about the Chinese court system centered on the, uh, you know, I mean, obviously you're not dealing in political cases. These are just commercial suits. And as you're steering around factories, you're avoiding kind of the social implications of layoffs and stuff. But one of the questions has been about enforcement, the difficulty, like mm. you can win yeah. a commercial suit with no political implications, but actually recovering the asset was difficult, was hard um, because of the, the political structure of China, because, uh, you know, the way that like some of these these distressed companies were connected to their local governments and the court system. Mm. Have you yeah. find that to have, have improved significantly or is that still a big challenge for you, given your 400 or so? <laughs> You know, I've been in thousands of lawsuits in China and the very first that we and these are simple lawsuits, you know, it's basically this corporate borrower defaulted and they're not paying back. So and there's this collateral, you know, it's not like complicated fact patterns uh, in a restructuring of a whole company with you know, unions and various interest holders in a bankruptcy in a U.S. court. So it's relatively simple in that sense. But the first lawsuit I was in China or we were in as investors was in a deal that we did in 2005. And, you know, I met with the judge and was talking to him about when to auction the collateral. And we definitely suspected that there was borrower slash local government influence on that because of the way that the reserve price on that building was set. And it just the whole process seemed unfair. And today it's drastically different. And Beijing wants it to be better because it's in Beijing's interest to see that these loans are enforceable so that people will buy them so that banks can clean up their balance sheets. And to the extent that you have corruption or you have local government influence or you have somebody paying a judge, that is directly in contrast to what Beijing's interest is, because nobody's going to buy these loans if you can't enforce them. And so in that sense, Beijing, the central government, is their interest is aligned completely with ours. Now, does that mean that you won't have a situation where some local governments, you know, if they're trying to influence something in some way or they threaten to? I mean, we very recently had a situation where there there was a bankruptcy we're, we're involved in and there was kind of improper notice given to interest holders and they were trying to have a creditor rights vote that would unfairly harm our interests. And they were like, well, we're really connected with the local government. And we were like, well, we don't care. We're just going to object to this and we will appeal it if you don't do things the right way. And so then they kind of came back with their tail between their legs and said, "Okay, okay, we'll do it the right way. Because they know that Beijing expects a process to happen in the way that national civil procedure rules require. But that, again, though, like if you have a loan that has some risk of social unrest, and a lot of times that's hard to ferret out just on the surface of the documents, then Beijing's not going to be on your side. So it's important to distinguish between those before you buy a loan. Well, Ben, that is fascinating. That is all the time we have. I'd really like to thank you for talking with us. Yeah, happy to, Pete. Pleasure as always. 
All right. Well, at this point, I'd also like to thank Sharon Lamb, Jamie Lowe, and Freddie Joyner for helping produce this episode. I'd like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please check out our website with our commentary, breakingviews.com. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to our other podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And have a great day. Goodbye.